The holiday season is now upon us. The year is absolutely flying by, and the news never stops. That's why we at the DSR Network have expanded our programming to cover even more of the world's events. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of November, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code STUFFING at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code STUFFING. Thank you very much for your support. Hi, this is Riley Fessler. In the spirit of Biden and Xi Jinping's landmark meeting at APEC, today's episode from the archive is a look back at Biden's China policy early on in the administration. We hope you enjoy. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., we've got Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you today, Corey? I'm exceedingly well. Thank you, David. I bet you're glad not to be in California where they have some kind of strange Asia-Pacific storm soaking the entire state. No, that is untrue. I am never... Not happy to be in California. I am always happiest when in California. Yeah, I looked at watching the football game last night, which I know is kind of lowbrow, but I did it. It was kind of a mess. And also joining us from Washington, D.C., not a clue about what a football game is, is Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you, Ed? I've been to NFL games. I wish to strenuously dispute your premise. You have been? I have. In, uh, in the United States? Uh, no, obviously not. Yes, I have. Yes, yes, yes. Where else? I'd be very happy to talk to you about Manchester United's pitiful performance against Liverpool yesterday. Yeah, well, my daughter is a Man U supporter, so I had to deal with some very irascible young teen behavior yesterday afternoon after that result. Yeah, this is an all sports podcast, by the way, folks. Corey can comment on the new Cardinals manager if she likes. Well, Corey will wait and see how the manager does, but she is dancing the happy dance for the elimination of the Los Angeles Dodgers <laughs> from the October baseball series. Yeah, I could just imagine, you know, if you want, you know, a kind of good low price sedative, how about a World Series pitting the Atlanta Braves versus the Houston <laughs> Astros? She'll get the lowest ratings in the history. <laughs> I'm sure that's true, but they're playing good baseball. I I very much hope that the Braves uh, will be willing to sacrifice lots of pitchers in order to throw at Astros batters. Nice idea. Anything that gets those uh, cheaters out of the game, I'm for it. Okay, let's talk about something more serious. 
Corey, there was a town hall last week and the president of the United States stood up and he said, we will defend Taiwan. And then a bunch of people at the White House said, humana, humana, humana. Did anything change? Or are we in the midst of, of what the blob calls strategic ambiguity, which also looks to me like we can't make up our mind? I don't think it's that we can't make up our mind. I think that the establishment in which I include myself believes that the defense of Taiwan is important, not only for protecting free societies, but also for sustaining America's alliance relationships. Taiwan is to the China challenge what West Berlin was to the Soviet challenge. But I don't think that's what the president meant. And this is not the first time the president did not appear to know what U.S. policy towards Taiwan was and was, had his statements rode back by his own administration. But I have an even bigger worry than that, David, which is that the blitheness with which the president appears to think we can successfully defend Taiwan makes me really nervous. There's a really big gap between the military force that they are and the strategy that they are claiming and the military force they are buying. And that's going to tempt adversaries to test whether we're actually going to do the things we say we're going to do. Isn't that the premise of strategic ambiguity, though? I mean, isn't the idea, well, our adversaries may think we're going to defend them, and that's as good as defending them. It's even better because you don't actually have to defend them. No, I... I quite seriously don't think that's the purpose of strategic ambiguity. I think the purpose is to not provoke a child. Well, I guess now that I hear myself say it out loud, you're right, David. (laughs) (laughs) It happens very seldom, but. (laughs) Um, That I think there is a widespread belief among Asia experts that if the United States is explicit about its commitment to the defense of Taiwan, that actually increases the likelihood that China will make a grab for Taiwan. And in order to minimize that risk, that's why strategic ambiguity gets adopted, not to convey an unwillingness to defend it, but in order to give the Chinese a face-saving reason not to test it. Interesting. Ed, what do you think of all of this? Is this, first of all, just game of gotcha with Biden because he misspoke? Or is there something deeper here in terms of lack of clarity about U.S. policy? You know, there's definitely a game of gotcha going on, which isn't entirely undeserved. He's the president. And he, he was given a chance in that town hall to make his statement a bit more ambiguous, more in line with the official policy. And he, and he you know, didn't take that chance. And as others have pointed out, you know, he, he voted for the Taiwan Relations Act in 1979 to ratify that as a senator and wrote an op-ed after George W. Bush made a similar sort of verbal slip up many years ago, 20 years ago. So, you know, there, there is some concern that Biden's forgotten what it was that he supported or, or that, you know, if, whenever you have a White House clarifying the president, it's more than just gotcha. There is some sort of attention that needs to be paid. But it needn't be anything more than a couple of minor misspeaks. I think the larger question, though, that you ask about strategic ambiguity 
it's a very good one because you've got this hardening consensus, a more hawkish frame of mind in the United States, for better or for worse, I think mostly for worse, that is pushing for that strategic ambiguity to be converted into a standard bilateral relationship and even to go so far as to recognize Taiwan as a nation. And I think this would do two things. First, it would it would you know break the original deal with China for normalization with China, which entailed the one China policy, starting with the 1972 Shanghai communique that Nixon and Mao negotiated, and, and then, of course, embedded there in the Taiwan Relations Act. And secondly, as Corey says, it would, it would sort of fulfill all the ultra-nationalist sort of fantasies and fears of the people around Xi Jinping and make conflict more likely. And so I think it's on, on those pragmatic grounds, this would be a very bad move. The advantage of, of the current sort of ambivalence towards whether the US would defend Taiwan or not, is policy can adapt nuance by nuance to the situation. Right now, the situation is a worrying one. And so America's language should be quite hawkish. It should be quite strong. There should be freedom of navigation patrols. I think those send very clear signals on their own. But then to breach what China sees as its red line by turning this into a formal alliance I think would risk everything we fear. And, you know, there's been war games on this. Most recently, Rand did one in which the US lost militarily to China. No doubt China would lose politically massively if it undertook such an aggressive action and therefore economically. But the fact that the US could quite plausibly lose militarily would lead to an immensely dangerous situation. And so I think recognizing Taiwan and having a mutual defense alliance would be. Or, or a U.S. security guarantee would be would be pretty reckless at this time. So, Corey, continuing on this theme of sort of China schizophrenia, last week, last Wednesday, I think, Ambassador Nicholas Burns, one of our best diplomats who has served with great distinction in both Republican and Democratic administrations, had his confirmation hearing, and he offered what seemed to me to be a very balanced view, cooperate when we can cooperate, stand up to China when we have to stand up to China. That, you know, that seems kind of to me the, the rational view for two countries that are deeply economically integrated and yet rivals. But, you know, there is this drumbeat. We've talked about it before. And I was at another event where I heard a U.S. government official say something like, we shouldn't let Chinese students into America because they'll steal all our ideas. And it was, you know, it was kind of playing into, you know, the worst kind of nationalist fears, to use Ed's language, of Americans about Chinese, when in fact, the real problem probably, in my view anyway, is that we don't have enough Americans studying Chinese or studying in China. But what do you think? I mean, are we at a kind of a, either a watershed moment or a moment of, of sort of high national confusion? Well, I agree that you can see the gears of the American government meshing to counter China's behavior, both its aggressive behavior internationally in Philippines, Vietnamese, Malaysian waters, and its repression internally, highlighting the genocide of Uyghur and other Chinese behavior. You can see the Defense Department, the 
White House, the Treasury Department, starting to get on the same sheet of music. The Commerce Department isn't there yet, David, but they're moving towards it. The CFIUS process is definitely there. The Commerce Secretary isn't quite there, but I think that's all to be expected given the the degree of interconnectedness of the U.S. and Chinese economies. What isn't meshing is either Silicon Valley or Wall Street. We are so far from having a whole of society strategy to approach China. I mean, American universities aren't aren't failing to recruit or admit Chinese students, David. And uh, Ray Dalio is investing equally in China and the United States because he's not sure who might win a war between the two countries. And so I think my colleague, Oriana Schuyler Mastro, put it exactly right. The Chinese have no idea what a United States unified against China might actually look like because we're so far away from that now. Uh, yeah, no, no, no kidding. I even get, I don't know, Ed, you know, you're very plugged in to Washington and the administration, but I even get feeling that within the administration, there's some uncertainty about which path we take. And I think there's a real appetite particularly on economic issues, Corey mentioned the Commerce Department, of taking a very tough line with China. You know, this goes back to the president's assertion that he would develop a a trade policy for the American worker. And that can't be a policy that's really gentle with China. What, what, what What do you think on the economic side of the equation? Corey mentions you know, Wall Street and 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 Silicon Valley sort of being all in on China or, or still mostly in. Is the schizophrenia deeper within our society? I think it's both. I mean, I'd add to, to what Corey said quite rightly about Gina Raimundo and the, the Commerce Department. I think there's also some ambivalence from the Treasury Department about the degree of China orchestra. So Janet Yellen, you know, might dis- to some degree embodying that too and her you know key highly talented advisor david lipton i think would probably it will be a fair description of his worldview that he has a he's not quite um on the same page as the more hawkish members of the administration so there is a debate going on and it is a very difficult debate it's going to be very hard to produce a coherent a unified philosophy on how to deal with china when we know that decoupling makes war more likely but that China's technological ambitions and some of its theft and its sort of overt 2025 and 2030 targets in terms of AI domination, you know, are there. And yet decoupling is also a barometer of how much more dangerous things are getting. So how do you produce a unified all of government, not just foreign policy, but, but trade and, and, and technology policy out of that? It's quite difficult to do. So I think we're always going to have these tensions. It is remarkable, nevertheless, to see J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and BlackRock and others, you know, behave like it's Black Friday and there's like this great sale going on and you just got to rush into China. It's pretty discordant commercial phenomenon to be observing amidst this larger talk of a Cold War. But in the absence of any reasons not to, of any any, um, political prohibitions on doing this, I think that that schizophrenia is going to continue. I think we're probably going to get slapped on the wrist for misusing the term schizophrenia. I've been 
chided a couple of times for that. But it is built into what is a fiendishly complex challenge. Right. I should have said multiple personality disorder (laughs) instead of schizophrenia. Hello, Deep State listeners. We're working hard to bring you additional programming, and we'd like for you to help shape it by completing our survey. Those who complete the survey will be entered to win one of three guest appearances on a future episode of Deep State Radio. To complete the survey, please visit bit.ly slash DSR Survey 2021. That's bit.ly slash DSR Survey 2021. Now back to the show. Let me switch uh, the, the, the focus here because I got two more topics I want to discuss. One more we'll discuss in this, the public portion of the program. One more we'll discuss in the members only portion, the last 15 minutes. But I want to switch the topic, Corey, if you're up for it, to a discussion of a far more insidious major global entity than even China. And that, of course, is Facebook. Um, uh, we, we, there's some new papers that have come out uh, and I'm just going to read you the opening paragraph of a piece in today's Washington post, a personal decision by Facebook CEO, Mark Zuckerberg leads to a crackdown on dissent in Vietnam measures to suppress hateful, deceptive content are lifted after the American presidential election in 2020 as pro-Trump groups disputing the legitimacy of the election experience meteoric growth. A dummy test account on Facebook in India is flooded with violent anti-Muslim propaganda, which remains visible for weeks on the real account of a frightened Muslim college student in northern India. We could go on and on. There is a whistleblower, Francis Haugen, who's out there talking about Facebook and these papers that have been revealed, reveal a company that is all about profit and completely agnostic to issues of rights, free speech, threats to the United States of America, and in fact, is leaning in to the more inflammatory side of the equation because it's better for their business. This is a global issue. This is going to cause controversy and scandal around the world. And it may be one of the first such issues with major tech players that are truly transnational. How do you view this in foreign policy and national security terms? So I agree that Facebook is evil because it's not a social media platform. It is an algorithm driving people to the most extreme kind of engagement. And what I took away from the articles that you cited, David, was the fact that as bad as it is in the United States, Facebook is immeasurably worse beyond the United States. Their terms of service haven't been translated into Hindi, although they operate in India. The way that they amplify extremism is the problem. The platform isn't the problem. The algorithm is the problem. And I think you're right that the leadership of Facebook has so consistently over so many years been so heedlessly destructive in order to maximize its profits that they don't deserve the benefit of the doubt of anybody at any time. 
in foreign policy, you know, the United States bears a culpability for the activity of American companies that operate out in the world. And so this does have a foreign policy effect and should national security types like us should be agitating for consequences for Facebook and other companies that are doing damage to democracy at home and doing damage to democracy out in the world. Let me say, Corey, you're exactly right. Um, <laughs> Thank you, David. And Corey is exactly right. Do you agree with her? I would like to click like against her comments. <laughs> Um, yeah, yes, I do agree with that. I mean, I was also particularly struck by the sort of far greater freedom to from Zuckerberg to indulge his worst instincts outside of the United States and inside of the United States. And that's a sort of pretty low bar, given recent history of Facebook sort of hate dissemination. There are two problems here. And I also sort of click like against what Corey said about this being a foreign policy, a national security concern. The United States. But there are two problems here. One is we know now, juries long since come back in, that people do respond more to things that make them angry than that make them go, ooh. Uh, and that's just a sort of, you know, reptilian side to our nature that these algorithms are designed to exploit and they work and they monetize and they get clicks and they, the business model is successful. Facebook's revenues are something like four times higher today than they were when Trump, Trump was elected in 2016. So if this has been its big tobacco phase, wow, that's a pretty successful big tobacco phase. It, it's not costing it a dime. It's continuing to make out like a bandit. And the second thing is that we know by now from repeated experience that when Zuckerberg claims to be making reforms, such as setting up this oversight board such as altering the privacy rules to make opt-in rather than opt-out, all the sort of things that he's done, that these are essentially cosmetic measures to attempt to defuse the short-term political outrage. They are not fundamental changes to the business model. How many times do we need to see this before we realize that direct regulation is absolutely essential? And I hope that, that we're getting closer to that moment. In a couple of minutes, we're going to do something we haven't done in in the life of four or five years of this podcast, and that is we're going to end the public section. And those of you who are members will be able to continue listening on for another fifteen or twenty minutes. Conversation will continue just as it did, but we want to encourage people to become members, and uh, this is one way that people do it. And you know, membership costs about a latte a month, so it's not highly burdensome. It's kind of our version of. Substack, and you know, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of you who listen to us each week, and we're just hoping you'll give us a little support and that this will encourage it. So, we've got a couple of four more minutes in this section, Corey. And, and you know, the natural question coming out of what Ed said is, what do we do about it? And is this purely a regulatory thing, or is this something where the national security side of the team needs to get involved? Sensible regulation of social media and in particular of Facebook, because it is an outlier. Other social media platforms have attempted to moderate the antagonism or to set boundaries and have transparent rules in a way that Facebook has not. So I do think 
Facebook is in particular a problem and you don't want to penalize all of social media or all of tech companies for something that's a specific Facebook problem. Um, but uh, yes, the national security community should absolutely be involved in developing the regulations. I wish our colleague David Sanger was here because he's given a lot of thought to this. Nicole Perloff also has a fabulous book on this subject. She's given a lot of careful thought to it. There's a team out at Stanford that's doing a whole bunch of work on what that regulation should look like. The business of Alex Stamos and Chris Krebs, which does cross the line of both national security and regulatory issues. I mean, there's so many resources available to do this. We just need to do this. And actually, one other useful lever might be, you know, the revelations about Facebook should move the United States closer in some ways to privacy protections that the European Union has wanted to get their hands around American companies with. And uh, given that the Biden administration has no actual trade policy, they could get a tech policy that might have some foreign policy advantages by uh, working with the EU on regulatory measures for Facebook. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's one of the things we're going to come to in this next section, um, because I want to talk about sort of short-term grades for the Biden foreign policy on a number of levels. And trade and tech is, is one of the things I wanted specifically to talk about. But Ed, what do you recommend we do? Strongly agree that um, privacy protections need to be brought in. Uh, I mean, whether they, it, it would be more convenient if they were the same as the European ones um, for everybody's sake to have one system. And I think perhaps the Trade and Technology Council that, that um, Biden set up with the Europeans will be addressing issues like that. There is also a California one, as Corey knows. There are, the, there are different options available. I wouldn't go so far as breaking Facebook up because that could just multiply the problem as opposed to re reduce it. But I do think that there are strong regulatory anti-monopoly grounds now that go beyond abuse of consumer pricing power, which obviously for a free product like Facebook, the traditional definition of abusive monopolistic behavior doesn't apply. There's now a whole body of work that people like Eric Wu and, and Lisa Khan you know, are in a position to bring to bear now that they're in the administration and an administration that is sympathetic to this. So we need to see quite big cases from the FTC that will test how far that can go. Yes. And one of the things that people said about this administration was that people uh, such as those that you mentioned who were being brought in were sympathetic to taking a stronger stand towards regulating big tech. We're going to talk about this more. Several of the people that Corey mentioned, including, of course, David Sanger, are people that we uh, intend to have here. And uh, this is a subject I think we'd like to do some deep dives on going forward, because I think it's underdeveloped as a foreign policy and national security issue. But it's also, I think, at a turning point in terms of other policy implications. At this point, we're going to draw our the public portion of the podcast to close. Naturally, we don't want any, anybody to leave. We want you to be a member. Listen to this. You know, each of our regular episodes of Deep State Radio, you're going to be able to, as as the ad you know has indicated to you, you'll be able to listen to the an additional 15 minutes of the podcast. 
but there are also going to be special members only kind of content, including written content each Wednesday and Friday and interactive podcasts uh, during the course of, of the week. So we strongly encourage you at this point to become a member as we begin to expand our offerings. And I think we can offer you things that you can't get someplace else. Uh, in the meantime, for those of you who are not members, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you to Ed. Thank you to Corey. And for those of you who are members, stand by. We'll be back to you in just a matter of seconds. Welcome back, members. And we are going to have a little bit of a discussion picking up on what Ed and what Corey were talking about. I know Ed has read this. I'm not going to assume that Corey has read this, but I wrote a piece uh, last, I don't know when it was, over the weekend for the Daily Beast following a conversation that I had with the Secretary of State as he was flying to Latin America. And in the piece, we talked about a number of things, but you know, I, I, I was struck by several things. One, I've known Tony Blinken for almost 30 years. That seems hard to believe given how young I am. But he he's not like other recent secretaries of state. This is a guy who's immersed himself in foreign policy at every level, has been happy to be in the limelight, is not like Pompeo or Kerry or Clinton running for president, is not trying to bigfoot the place with his ego. And he really believes in diplomacy. He really believes in the blocking and tackling of foreign policy. And so there have been a number of things where behind the scenes, he and the rest of the team in the State Department have begun either repairing old relationships, getting the U.S. back into institutions, or as Ed pointed out, and as, as Tony pointed out in our conversation, doing things like the trade and technology forum that they had with Europe in Pittsburgh a couple of weeks ago, which is one of these things that doesn't really get covered in the press. But if you want to have some leverage over the Chinese on trade and technology issues, you've got to do it with the US and the Europeans working in tandem. There are other examples when, you know, when I spoke to him, he was on his way to uh, Ecuador to promote democracy, but then to Colombia to talk to other countries from the region about other ways that we can stem refugee flows. None of these things are perfect. None of them are magic bullets. But at least after, you know, the, the, the four years of the Trump administration, where literally thousands of people left the State Department and where diplomacy was downgraded, this is a kind of a reversal. I'm wondering how you think it's going. No, I thought your, your, your piece of uh, your conversation with, uh, with Blinken was, a, uh, as I think I tweeted out, a very sort of timely um, and refreshing reminder of that, you know, Effective diplomacy is about constant gardening, and 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 we measure partly what Blinken's doing, as you did in your piece, through who he isn't, and that is Mike Pompeo, or indeed Pompeo's predecessors under Trump, that he's not turning up, you know, on the eve of an Israeli election and overtly boosting Netanyahu's chances. He's not sort of hanging out with Orbanites. He's he's not using or abusing his foggy bottom role as America's chief diplomat to play political games. Uh, a partisan games with like-minded affinity populist clusters around the world, which is the opposite of diplomacy. It's actually something that deeply unsettled our allies. So it's great just from that starting negative starting point that we have somebody who believes in diplomacy on bona fide diplomatic grounds. So I think that's the first thing. You know, the second is, as you point out, he is very close to Biden. 
and uh, it's not a political rival. So the trust there is, you know, the, the, the friction you often or perhaps usually get between Foggy Bottom and the White House isn't there. There is a there's a very comfortable, long-standing relationship. You know, that can at times also be a weakness. And I think over the Afghanistan withdrawal and then AUKUS, the perception was that, you know, Blinken didn't drive the AUKUS deal. It was Kirk Campbell who drove the deal. And then because Blinken's a fluent French speaker who was educated partly in Paris, it's he who has to go on the apology tour to France. I think it might have been better there if he'd simply owned it, even if he hadn't entirely devised it and been a bit tougher with the French. Because the impression sometimes is, and I think this is probably unfair, that Blinken is more of a staffer than a principal, precisely because he has worked you know, on, on the Senate committee with Biden over so many years. Generally speaking, though, I think he's a dramatically refreshing improvement on the diplomacy that's gone on over the last four years, that he is doing his best to repair alliances, that he speaks for the president and carries that authority, and that that's an invaluable tool that we should expect of secretaries of state but only very rarely get it nowadays. So, Corey, I'm going to say a couple of really unpopular things. One is when I draw analogies of the benefits of Blinken's closeness to the president, one of the, the analogies I drew was Condi Rice. I know Condi Rice is a controversial figure, particularly in the Democratic Party, but actually, particularly in the second part of her tenure, she was quite a successful Secretary of State because she had this relationship with Bush because they were extremely close. Just as, you know, I would say the most successful secretary of state in U.S., you know, modern history in the past 40 years or 50 years is James Baker, who had this kind of relationship with the president. But the other thing that I think sets Blinken apart, oddly, from the past administration is I think he's a believer in the bipartisan consensus that used to be at the center of U.S. foreign policy. He spoke to me about going off to the George Shultz Memorial and, you know, about those kind of values, something I saw Richard Haas of Council on Foreign Relations wrote about last week, this kind of return to can we maintain this bipartisan or nonpartisan center at, in, in U.S. foreign policy? And I think he believes in that, just like he believes in, in diplomacy. What's your take? So I'm less persuaded than either you or Ed are, because, for example, Secretary Blinken does not appear to believe that trade policy is a major part of America's traditional foreign policy that you just described, right? I still don't know what foreign policy for the middle class is beyond trade protectionism. And I think that's one big problem for the Biden administration that the Secretary of State ought to have a view on, ought to be able to make progress on. Second reason I am more skeptical than you and Ed, I absolutely agree that American foreign policy is better off under the Biden administration than under the erratic and sharply partisan and sharply political foreign policy of the Trump administration. But the two biggest foreign policy decisions of the Biden administration, the abandonment of Afghanistan and AUKUS, the Secretary of State was nowhere on. And so I'm not 
quite sure how that translates into diplomatic greatness. I mean, there were a lot of unforced errors in how AUKUS came to be. And good diplomacy should have been able to sand down those problems. And it didn't. And as for Secretary Blinken's ability to deliver the precedent, I mean, it sounds like both Secretary Austin and Secretary Blinken came back from the NATO meetings in the spring to tell the president that NATO allies did not want to abandon Afghanistan and especially not on the terms Biden wanted. And it made no difference at all with the president. With the utmost respect, because that is all I have for Corey. Uh, Well, no, there's also affection. It is possible that trade policy can also be the enforcement of trade laws. And and, and I think that is part of what the foreign policy for middle class is, although clearly we need to see more that's that's going on there. I, you know, again, we we can use different terms to to describe Afghanistan. And I think you and I come out in different places. So I would describe it as ending a 20 year failed war and you would describe it as the abandonment of Afghanistan. I'll just but stipulate. I'm not mitigating the decision on Afghanistan. I'm saying that the Secretary of State had a view he tried to persuade the president of and got no traction, which goes to your point about his closeness to Biden and his ability to deliver and speak for the president. Well, I, th- I think that may be less true on Afghanistan than it is on AUKUS. I think Ed has characterized what the prevailing view is of what happened on AUKUS fairly accurately. Ed, to go from whatever the grade is now of the Biden foreign policy team to an A three years from now, what do they have to do? I mean, I'll refrain from telling you what I give them now because, you know, I, I'm not a teacher and I don't grade papers. But to improve whatever that grade is, I would like to see one of the things, uh, well, a number of things, but one of them um, that Corey, I think, correctly emphasized is the full commercial and economic engagement of the United States with its allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific and across the Atlantic. I think that bringing Europe, um, as you mentioned, David, earlier, into a sort of common front or at least a common position technologically and in terms of geopolitical viewpoints on China is an absolutely critical measure of the success of the Biden administration. But I do think in the short term to sort of buy support amongst allies and non-allies alike, it must step up its global vaccine efforts. It has to step those up for, for, for domestic policy too, for the health and safety of Americans as well. But in terms of buying goodwill and of countering Russia and China with their vaccine diplomacy, far less efficacious vaccines, it should be added, this is still happening too slowly. And, you know, Xi Jinping, there's barely a a leader of, you know, places like the Seychelles and Mauritius that Xi Jinping hasn't met three or four times. Some places he's actually visited. America needs to really engage face-to-face with leaders in Africa, Central Asia, Latin America, and understand that that's what China is doing. And the best way of getting a really good face-to-face sort of series of interactions is for America to be the vaccine Marshall Plan. Excellent. Corey? I love all of Ed's ideas. I would add on to that, that the Biden administration should actually fund American diplomacy as sufficient to make it 
as vibrant as you rightly said, David, and they should also fund the Pentagon sufficient to execute the strategy. It's not just a Biden administration problem. It's been going on, but the Biden administration is continuing the problem of having a strategy that is unexecutable by the forces, diplomatic, military, and other that they purchase. All good ideas. And we are a long, long way from the end. We're not even at the end of the first year of four here. And um, we will watch these things extremely closely as we go forward in upcoming episodes. Those of you who are listening, you can shape what upcoming episodes look and sound like. We're doing a survey, and you may have heard an ad in the middle of this saying, go online, click the survey, and tell us what you think and what you want more of. We are an interactive media organization, which means we will change to respond to the needs of our listeners. And we'll also be doing more and more uh, shows as we have over the course of the past year where you guys get to participate and ask questions and thus also shape the shows. So do the survey, participate in the shows. And all of a sudden, Deep State Radio is different from all the other media outlets you've got because it's the one that's responding directly to your questions. In the meantime, thanks to all of you for being members and for supporting what we're doing. Encourage your friends to do so. Hope you enjoyed this uh, good discussion with Ed and with Corey. Corey and Ed, you are excellent as always. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. And we'll be joined again by more of our regulars. Rosa was, I think, waylaid by massive storms across America this week. And uh, David will be back soon. And join us for the other episodes of the podcast that we've got coming up. If you want to know more about them, go to the DSRnetwork.com. For now, thank you, Ed. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, stay healthy out there, everybody. Bye-bye.